Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, Paul writes, For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect, because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace, so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So what is the great theme of Romans chapter 4. It is the biblical concept of justification. Paul has written about how we're justified in verses 1 through 8, who are justified in verses 9 through 17. Paul will argue that it's not dependent on religion in verses 9 through 12. Justification is not dependent on the law in verses 13 through 17. And Paul will soon answer the question, when are we justified in verses 17 through 25? So in the last several weeks, I have brought to you several definitions of the word justification. Let me give you another by Augustus Strong. He wrote in his systematic theology, quote, By justification, we mean the judicial act of God, which, on account of Christ, to whom the sinner is united by faith, he declares that sinner to no longer be exposed or no longer exposed to the penalty of the law, but restored to his favor. All of the elements of justification include all of those things. The judicial act of God, based on what Jesus has done, to whom the sinner is united by faith. We We are united by faith to Christ, and because we're united by faith to Christ, we are declared no longer exposed to the penalty of sin by the judicial pronouncement of God. Paul wants the reader to understand that there's a right way to come to God. There's a right way to be accepted by God. And there's a wrong way to come to God and be rejected by God. And so the right way results in acceptance and the wrong way results in rejection. And for many people that makes their hair stand on end. They begin to bristle. They begin to say, how dare you? How could you possibly be so intolerant? The truth is that there has always been only one way to go to God. And it has always been on his terms. It has never been based on what I think or on what I want. And here's the shock for you. It's never been based on the way you think or based on the way you want. God has always based salvation on the revelation of himself. 
You have to understand the observant Jew was convinced that religious ritual and the observance of the law had to play some role in God's mind. Why else would he give ritual? Why else would he give the law? The moral Gentile was convinced that baptism and virtue has to play some role in being accepted by God. Otherwise, why would Jesus command baptism or virtue? So the Bible teaches that salvation has always been by blood. Hebrews 9.22 And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood there's no remission. Unquote. The blood must be innocent according to Hebrews 9.24. The, ml- the blood must be shed according to Matthew 26.28. The blood must be applied according to Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 where it says and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness the first begotten from the dead the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood salvation has always been through a person According to Jonah chapter 2 verse 9 and Acts 4.12. In 1 Thessalonians 5.9 it says, For God hasn't appointed us to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. In Hebrews 5.9 it says, And being made perfect or complete, he, that is Jesus, became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Blood, a person. And salvation, salvation is always, always through grace. A grace that's preceded by the sinner's faith and a grace that's followed by a Savior's peace. In Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself. Salvation by grace, Titus 2, 11, Romans 5, 1, Hebrews eleven six. And so, for the person who, even for a moment, thinks that he or she can work his or her way to heaven, apart from blood, apart from a person, apart from grace, has completely misunderstood what the Bible says. There are some who are convinced that they can work their way to heaven. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote, quote, Man is incurably addicted to doing something for his own salvation, and therefore it is most difficult for him to accept the doctrine of pure grace, unquote. So Paul will contrast the promise of the Lord with the precepts of the law. Once again, Paul proves only The valid rule of salvation is the rule of faith. So he brings up the issue. What about God's promise to Abraham? The promise wasn't based in any way on Abraham's adherence to the law of Moses because the law of Moses didn't even exist. Paul remains chained to his bedrock declaration 
The just shall live by faith in chapter 1, verse 17. And now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets in chapter 3, verse 21. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law, chapter 3, verse 28. The living Bible is even more direct, quote, we are saved by faith in Christ and not by the good things that we do, unquote. But you, like me, may have grown up in a world where it was drilled into your head. You don't get something for nothing. You don't get something for nothing. There's no free lunch. Or as I'm fond of saying, the sky's the limit if somebody else is paying the bill. That's what I always think when my children get together because they know that dad's going to pay. So what's the catch? Look at Paul's plain statement in verse 13. For the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now think about what Paul is saying. Abraham was promised an inheritance. And in Hebrews, the writer in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 8, 9, and 10 says, quote, Hebrews eleven eight By faith Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he would receive for an inheritance, obeyed, and he went out, not knowing whether he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city whose hath foundations whose builder and maker is God. Abraham wasn't just looking for the promised land. He was looking for the promised Lord. The building, which is a city, which has foundations, which builder and maker is God, isn't just simply the heavenly tabernacle that you go to when you die. You are the heavenly tabernacle. God's going to give you a body that's joined and, and appropriate for, for heaven and for the future. So what is the objection? What is the objection that Paul seeks to answer? The objection is given by the person who's convinced that the blessing will come through the law and that the Gentiles are cursed apart from the law. You have to understand something. Part of what Paul is doing is he is answering the objection of the person who still tenaciously clings to the idea that only Jews can go to heaven. Not just Jews, but Jews who are the direct descendants of Jacob, the Jews who have received the law, not just the Jews who have received the law, but the Jews who who observe the law. So Paul will argue God promised Abraham and his seed that he would be the heir of the world and the promise wasn't conditioned on the law or any other legal code. And remember, the law was given 430 years later, according to Galatians chapter 3, verse 17. Again, MacDonald writes, quote, It was an unconditional promise of grace to be received by faith, the same kind of faith which we, by which we obtain God's righteousness today. In what sense? Abraham believed a promise. 
In what sense? You believe a promise. In what sense? The promise that God in Christ has given a message of hope that you can believe and embrace. McDonald further argues that Paul's expression, heir of the world, means, quote, that he would be the father of believing Gentiles as well as believing Jews in chapter 4, verse 11, and, 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 and verse 12, and then later many nations in verse 17 and 18, not just the Jewish nation. Some of you grew up in a, in a religious tradition or you may have even grown up in a Christian home. You may have learned that song. Do you remember? Father Abraham had many sons. You know it. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them, and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. I know you want to sing it. Just It starts going through your head, and you remember Father Abraham. It says right arm, and then it goes left arm, right leg, left leg, chin up, turn around, sit down. It's a child's song, but it's... Filled with meaning. The thing that it's filled with meaning is that it invites our children to pick up your right hand and your left hand and your right foot and your left foot and to turn around and to sit down in the promises of God. John Phillips points out promises take two forms in the Old Testament. Conditional and unconditional. And the promise to Abraham was unconditional. That means apart from the reception or the observance of the law. Unconditional in the sense that it was activated by God. Unconditional in the sense that it was confirmed by God. Unconditional in the sense that it was made real based on the promises of God. The promises are not guaranteed by the performances of, of, of Abraham, but rather on the faithfulness of God. And this is Paul's argument in Galatians 3.17 and in Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Again, John Phillips writes at length, quote, The rules and requirements given to the Jews in the Mosaic law at a later date do not affect in any way the original unconditional promise. The Mosaic law had to do with the behavior of a redeemed people already in a covenant relationship with God and were aimed at securing their health and securing happiness and securing holiness as God's people. Paul has already made it clear that Abraham's true seed were those who walked in Abraham's steps and exercised faith as Abraham did in verse 12. We can draw a parallel here. The practical requirements of the epistles which are incumbent on Christians today do not add to our salvation. They have to do rather with our spiritual peace. And prosperity and power as God's sons, unquote. The Bible teaches that Abraham had two seeds. One of the law, the other of faith. Do you understand who he's talking about? He's talking about the Jews. And then he's talking about everybody else. 
who identify Abraham as their father. This is Paul's argument for the next several verses. So when he says in verse 13, read it again, for the promise that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed. The word might just slip right past you. The word is sperma. It's the same word translated in verse 16 and verse 18. By the way, this word is used 44 different times in the New Testament. In eight cases, it means the kind of seed that you sow in the ground in the hopes of reaping a harvest. All the other times that it appears in the New Testament, it's in the context of descendants or offspring. And so here in the context, it means descendants. And so Paul's argument will go against the law. Look at what it says in verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made of no effect. Now Paul is going to bring the contrast. We ask the text, who are the real heirs? The sons of faith or the sons of the law? Who can receive the blessings of justification? Those who are law keepers or those who are the recipients of the promise of inheritance by faith. So Paul argues, okay, for if those who are of the law are heirs, for the person who shouts, sorry, Jews, Jews are the heirs. The Jewish people who observe the Jewish law, who take in the Jewish commandments, who walk in the Jewish observances, they are the keepers of the law. They're the ones who are justified. Remember what Paul is doing, even though it may be difficult for you to understand. Remember over and over again, I've told you that in the first century, the big, big controversy was do Gentiles have to become Jews in order to become Christians? Paul argues, no, no, a thousand times no. Why is this even important to you? It's for the person who says, well, what do I have to do to become a Christian? And the person says, well, you have to believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. And what else? Well, you you turn from your sin and you embrace him as Savior. And what else? And you believe by faith that God allowed him to go to a cross to die for your sins. And that he rose from the dead for your justification. And what else? Nothing. Well, don't I have to live differently? You will live differently. No, no, do I have to? No, you will. No, do I have to? No, no, you will. No, do do I have to? In what sense? In, In the sense that do I have to in order to please God, be accepted by God, be justified by God, be reconciled to God? Is there something that I have to do or say? Is there some church that I have to go to? Some ritual that I have to embrace? Some book that I have to read? Some door that I have to knock on? The answer is no. No. 
Paul argues, if you say the keepers of the law are heirs, then how do you explain the faith of Abraham? You make the father of faith's faith void. Try saying that fast three times. The father of faith's faith void. I'm not going to do it two more times because I'm sure I'll slip up. Here's the point. Faith is set aside because it's a principle that is antithetical or opposite to the law. This is why Paul can write, faith is made void. That means of null effect. Faith is a matter of believing and law is a matter of doing. So what does Paul say? Faith is made void and the promise of no effect. Why? Because now the promise would be based on conditions that are foreign to faith. They would be based on conditions foreign to grace, foreign to faith. Because they would be based on conditions that no one is able to meet. And what conditions are those? Keeping the law. And look what Paul writes in verse 15. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. When Paul writes, because the law brings about wrath, another way we could put that is, the law invites judgment. In what way? The moment a law exists and you break the law, then you're guilty of breaking the law and you have to experience the consequences of breaking the law. Have you ever seen a sign that said, do not step on this grass? And every molecule in your body goes, I want to step on that grass. What is it about the sign that invites trouble? Now imagine if there was no such thing as a law in your home where your mother said, you can't eat ice cream after midnight. If there's a law in your house that says, you can eat ice cream before midnight, but you can't eat ice cream after midnight. What happens? You grow up and you can't wait to eat ice cream after midnight. (laughs) See, we laugh, but you, you understand the point. There is no law if there is no transgression. In the, in, the, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, when he says there's one prohibition and one prohibition only of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you cannot eat. How many laws are there? One. There's not 10. There's not 20. There's not 613 mosaic laws. There's one. So could Adam and Eve in the garden smoke marijuana until their hearts were content? There's no prohibition. Dude, he's given us the herbs of the field. Behold, it is good. Hey, there's no law. What if they grind grapes up and make alcohol and get stark raving drunk. There's no law. What if they eat magic mushrooms and have visions? There's no law. Where there's no law, there's no transgression. 
You can't be a lawbreaker when there is no law. Again, Phillips writes, quote, The practical outcome of the law of Moses was to condemn, not to save, for it showed just how far a person had come short of God's standards. A soul awakened by the thunderings of the law surely flee back to the promise, not try to scale the quaking fire-bathed sides of Sinai, unquote. It was, it was Philip's way of saying that once the revelation of the law came, when Moses received it on the Sinai, and you have the Ten Commandments, what did the Ten Commandments prove beyond a shadow of a doubt? That they were all lawbreakers. And so you receive the first law. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul with all your mind, with all your strength. And you realize that that you never do that. There's a moment where you let up. There's a moment where you let in. There's a, there's a moment that you give in to selfishness and sacrifice and self-absorption and, and self-preoccupation. And the Bible says if you're guilty of breaking one law, then you're guilty of breaking the whole law. And part of the point that Paul will reiterate time and time again is the law will bring you back to the place where you understand that you're a lawbreaker in great need of a savior. So Paul invites us to think about it. It condemns those who fail to keep the law in all of its demands, in all of its requirements. But you need to understand, all of its demands, all of its requirements, perfectly and continuously. And since no one can keep the law, all are condemned to death. That's why he says it brings wrath. Here's what Paul is arguing. It's impossible to be under the law without being under its curse. Samuel Bolton wrote, quote, The law sends us to the gospel that we may be justified, and the gospel sends us to the law again to inquire what is our duty being justified, unquote. Charles Spurgeon, who was called the Prince of Preachers, said, There is no point upon which men make greater mistakes than upon the relation which exists between the law and the gospel. Some men put the law instead of the gospel. Others put the gospel instead of the law. Some modify the law and the gospel and preach neither law nor gospel. Others entirely abrogate the law, which means undermine the law, by bringing in the gospel. Many there are who think that the law is the gospel, and who teach that men by good works of benevolence, honesty, righteousness, and sobriety may be saved. And then he goes on and he says, quote, Such men do err. On the other hand, many teach that the gospel is a law, that it has certain commands in it by obedience to which men are meritoriously saved. Such men err from the truth and understand it not. A certain maintain that the law and the gospel are mixed and that partly by observance of the law and partly by God's grace men are saved. These men understand not the truth and are false teachers. The coming of the law is explained in regard to its objects. Quote, moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, unquote. Then comes the mission of the gospel, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, unquote. 
In Proverbs 4.12, we read, there is a way. There is a way. There is a way that seems right to a man. But that way is the way of death. So why are so many, why do so many place their confidence on false hopes of salvation? People think the road to God is education. Well, look, if I can just get an education, then I'll be fine. Or church membership, or good works, or creating a pain-free or a sin-free environment. We could include religious rituals. We could include living by the golden rule. We could include tithing or charity work. Paul knew the religious Jews would cling to the law. And so he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 6, Knowing that a man is not, is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Jesus Christ. I want you to pause for a moment and think about what Paul is saying. If anyone was a good Jew, it's me, Paul would say. If anyone was circumcised on the eighth day, it was me. If anyone is Jew by birth, by my father and my mother, and raised in the the religious traditions, not just of Judaism, but of, of being a Pharisee. Paul came to the conclusion, but even we have believed in Jesus Christ, that we might be justified by the faith of Christ. And not by the works of the law. For the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. Paul comes to the conclusion. If I'm going to be accepted by God. If I'm going to be adjudicated. That means there's the judicial pronouncement of not guilty. Forgiveness and reconciliation. It's going to have to be through what Christ has done. And so Paul's argument for faith, verse 16, therefore, it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all the seed, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of faith, the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Do you understand what Paul is doing? He's bringing it home. He's bringing it home. Every kid knows what I mean when I say bringing it home. If you grew up in the world in which I grew up, if you were ever in Little League or Major League or however you played baseball, when you go up to the plate and you make the swing and you watch the ball soar and you go to first and you go to second and you go to third and everyone is screaming, you know what they're screaming. Go home! Go home! Go home! You round the base and you head for home. And this is what Paul is doing. He's gotten up to bat and he's swung and the ball is... It looks like it's going out of the park. And he's running and he's running for dear life. Therefore, he says... You you remember what therefore is therefore, remember? Therefore, look and see what it's... Therefore, it is of faith. Why? The law produces God's wrath. 
and not his justification. The law produces God's wrath and not his justification. Therefore, it is of faith. What does that mean to you? Self-salvation is impossible. Therefore, it's a faith. By the way, what do you think about when you hear that word faith? On my radio program, I know that there are people who are listening to me who are believers and unbelievers and make-believers. There are people who grew up in a religious tradition and those who are quite apart from any kind of religious tradition. And when they hear the word faith, they think all kinds of things. They think about the religious tradition they grew up in. What faith are you? Catholic? Protestant? Lutheran? Mormon? What faith are you? In science and philosophy, some think when they hear the word faith, they hear the word not real. Something made up. I have scientist friends who when they hear the word faith, do you know what immediately goes from their brain to their heart? It is excuse not to think. So when they read in verse 16, therefore it is a faith, they're processing that word thinking it's an excuse not to think. But faith in the Bible is not an excuse not to think. Faith in the Bible isn't a religious tradition that you grew up in. Faith in the Bible is the assurance that the thing that God has said in his word is true. Does that shock you? Faith is the assurance of the thing that God said in his word is true. What has he said? Jesus said, I came from God. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it more abundantly. Jesus said that God sent me to be the satisfying solution to the problem of your sin. And his resurrection from the dead proves it. This is what Jesus said. I'm the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, even if he were dead, yet shall he live. This isn't mindlessness. This isn't something that's disconnected from history. Faith is not simply that the assurance of the thing that God said is true. It's more than that. And that God will act according to what he has said in his word. That God will act in accordance with what he has said in his word. What does that mean? It means that if the person who submits to what he said. I believe you. I believe that Jesus is the Lord. I believe that he rose from the dead. I believe that I can experience hope and life and forgiveness and reconciliation. That's what it means. No wonder Paul writes that it might be according to grace. Faith expects from God what no person could reasonably expect. I'm going to repeat that. Faith expects 
from God what no one could reasonably expect. Well, what do you mean? That my sin could be forgiven. That his grace could be applied to my circumstances. That in spite of my wickedness, in spite of my rebellion, in spite of my disobedience, in spite of my wickedness, I can turn from all of those things and embrace all that God has in Christ. And so therefore it is a faith. Paul writes, all are justified by the free gift of his grace through being set free in Christ. In Ephesians 2.8. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. So what's the obligation in receiving a gift? It's the simple, humble reception of that gift. Again, gifts can take two forms. Those that you accept... And those that you reject. John Stott famously said, Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. That's the kind of grace that Paul is talking about. Grace is love that cares and stoops and rescues. It's the kind of love And it's the kind of care and it's the kind of rescue that God has provided in Christ. So what does faith do? Number one, faith brings us into God's favor. Number two, faith brings us into God's family. I want you to think about that for just a moment. What does faith do? It brings us into God's favor And then it brings us into God's family. What else? Faith removes the ambiguity and the uncertainty. Who is the person who is uncertain about their salvation? It's the person who sees in himself or herself an unfinished work. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Of course you're not sure. That's because you still trust yourself. Well, I'm not sure. Of course you're not sure. Because of uncertainty and ambiguity, you still think that there's something that you can contribute. Well, if I can just make it through the day without being an idiot. Good luck with that. But thank God. That salvation isn't based on the presence or the absence of what you think or what you want. Who is the person who is certain about his or her salvation? It's the person who sees the finished work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary and who makes the statement, I have nothing to give or to contribute. Other than in humility to just submit to what God has done in Christ. You know, guarantees are a funny thing. I love the commercial that comes on TV, the men's warehouse. You'll like the way you look. I guarantee it. I love to go to the men's warehouse and put on a new suit, look in the mirror and go, 
I hate the way that I look. <laughs> because the salesman always goes, the clothes look great. We can't do anything about you. <laughs> A guarantee is only as good as the person who makes the guarantee. The word translated sure comes from an adjective in the original language, bebeos. It means secure or firm. Thayer means, it says, valid, therefore inviolable. Other Greek specialists say legally guaranteed security. The RSV says guaranteed to all his descendants. Let's dig deep for just one more moment before we close. Look at the phrase. So that the promise might be sure. That means guaranteed. Look at the very next word. To all. Guaranteed. To all. Guaranteed. To Jew and Gentile. To free and slave. To male and female, to young and old, to ignorant and sophisticated, healthy and sick, confident and insecure. Failure and success. Secure to all the seed. The promise must be sure. And the promise must be to all. No one who seeks to earn salvation can ever be sure. Again, MacDonald writes, if justification depended on man's law works, he could never be sure. He could never be sure because he could not know if he had done enough good works or the right kind. No one who seeks to earn salvation enjoys full assurance. But when salvation is presented as a gift to be received by believing, then man can be sure that he is saved on the authority of the word of God, unquote. And this is why so many of your family and friends, this is why so many of your neighbors are so insecure. Because they think that there's still something that they must contribute or that they must do. Can you imagine how terrified Your Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormon friends are. They have to knock on one more door. They have to make one more presentation. They have to make it through one more day. They have to attend one more meeting. They have to read one more book. They have to make it. They have to make it. And you never know. Are they quite there? Are they there yet? In the oldest book in the Bible, in Job chapter 25, verse 4, Job asks... How then can man be justified with God? Or how can he be clean that is born of a woman? The answer is given by Paul in the next chapter. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God 
through our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? The source of biblical justification is God. The wellspring of justification is grace. The purchase of justification is Christ's blood. The basis of justification is Christ's obedience. The assurance of justification is Jesus' resurrection. The power of justification is the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us. And the work of justification is the outcome. As the Holy Spirit lives inside of you. And you now live in peace. Remember, peace isn't just the absence of conflict. It's the right relationship that we have in God, in Christ. And guess what? I know you now think, I know everything there is to know about justification. But it's like the TV commercial. But wait, there's more. but I'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you that justification is illustrated in our father, Abraham, that it's apart from ordinance and and it's apart from the law. And Heavenly Father, we, we pray that as we begin to understand and look at the results of justification, as we live in grace and freedom and mercy and peace, that we can begin to understand what the Bible means by abundant life and about the life that's filled with joy. Lord, there's no greater peace than peace with you. And the peace that comes from you. And Lord, I pray for that person who their life could be characterized by a number of different words, but peace isn't one of them. There's constant turmoil. There's constant threat. There's constant discomfort. There's constant pain. There's constant worry. Lord, I pray that by your Holy Spirit, Lord, you would draw them to yourself. That you would speak the words of confident grace and and confident mercy. That they could hear the declaration being made by your lips, not guilty. And so, Lord, we, in obedience, come to you just like the scriptures say. Jesus said, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Lord, we pray that we would run into the arms of Jesus, that we would run into the sacrifice of Jesus, that we would run into the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, that we would run into the salvation of Jesus, knowing that salvation is always by blood. That salvation is always by an innocent sacrifice. That salvation is always by a person. And that it's always by grace. In Jesus' name.